Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the music from Fitzwillie, made in 1967. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Thanks everyone for joining me on this episode. I think we're going to have a lot of fun exploring the music from today's featured film. Before we start, I want to explain that I am slightly switching up the order in the chronology of John Williams' films. Both Fitzwillie and Valley of the Dolls were essentially released in the same week, with Valley of the Dolls having its U.S. premiere on December 15th and Fitzwillie opening on December 20th. However, I would like to talk about Fitzwillie first because that film was pretty much the end of an era for John Williams and Valley of the Dolls highlighted a new direction for the maestro. So, we'll talk about Fitzwillie in this episode and in a little bit I'll talk about some of the historical significance the film had for John Williams. The film itself is not really a laugh-out-loud comedy, but you do feel good at the end. And really, who can feel bad after watching Dick Van Dyke on screen for 105 minutes? Van Dyke was coming off his very popular TV show, The Dick Van Dyke Show, which had been on the air for five years from 1961 to 1966. Three years before Fitzwillie hit theaters, Van Dyke ventured into theatrical films, playing the chimney suite Bert in Mary Poppins. So, Van Dyke was a household name, and United Artists was banking on that with this film about a butler who moonlights as a thief to keep his employer living the life to which she was accustomed. Starring as Van Dyke's love interest was Barbara Feldon, who was just making a name for herself as Agent 99 in the TV show Get Smart. Here's a brief rundown of the plot, with spoilers to follow. Van Dyke is the title character, an American butler named Claude Fitzwilliam, or Fitzwillie for short. He runs the household of the unmarried Victoria Woodworth, played by the esteemed Edith Evans. Miss Vicky, as she is known, lives in luxury in New York City, though her father left her nothing after his death. Because Miss Vicky hired Fitzwillie as a butler to follow in his father's footsteps, Fitzwillie feels like he owes Miss Vicky and concocts elaborate schemes to milk wealthy corporations of their money to fill Miss Vicky's bank account. At the start of the film, this enterprise isn't immediately established for the audience, and it takes about 30 minutes for us to really understand what Fitzwillie is doing and why he is doing it. The house's entire staff is in on the capers that Fitzwillie plans, and that is thrown into chaos when Miss Vicky hires a college student named Juliet, played by Barbara Feldon. Eventually, Juliet learns of the various schemes Fitzwillie is running and decides to play along, mostly because she's fallen in love with Fitzwillie and he with her. The big finale involves stealing cash from the Gimbel's department store on Christmas Eve, and the execution feels like it rips a page from the 1960 film Ocean's Eleven, even though this whole movie is based on a novel that was published in 1960. Of course, the robbery goes off successfully, though there are a few hitches. But one of Fitzwillie's footmen confesses to the robbery to clear his conscience, and the money ends up back in the store's hands. Luckily, Miss Vicky comes upon a major financial windfall, and the household is secure for many years to come. 
I enjoyed the film, even though there weren't any true comedic moments, which is odd considering that Dick Van Dyke did a lot of physical comedy on his TV show, and surely audiences in 1967 were hoping for some of that. Because of the lack of true comedy, or because moviegoers probably didn't want to see TV stars on the big screen, the movie didn't make a lot of money, just $2 million at the box office. Still, it offers us another John Williams comedy score. The 105-minute film features just about 45 minutes of music, which Williams was able to crank out quickly and get to work on the more demanding Valley of the Dolls that was also on his plate at the same time. Though he worked fast on the Fitzwilly score, it has a few quality moments. Let's start with the main theme, a stately and subtly comic march for Fitzwilly that plays at the start of the film when Fitzwilly is seen supervising the work of his staff. credit sequence runs during this introduction to the staff in Miss Vicky's household, and in the credits, John Williams is listed as Johnny Williams, as he has been for quite a few years. The maestro had been using that name for actually previous 16 films, with the exception of his first Daddy-O, and Fitzwilly would be the last film in which he called himself Johnny Williams on screen. Clearly, Williams was ready to take himself seriously, and a name change was the right thing to do in order to make that happen. The job we see Fitzwilly and his crew pulling off at the start of the film is a bit confusing. Fitzwilly poses as a butler from another house and orders many cases of wine at a wine shop. He tells the clerk to send the wine to a house where his henchmen are waiting to put it into a truck owned by a phony charity called St. Dismas. John Williams uses the main theme to highlight the caper, as the trumpets, tubas, and French horns complement each other and have a lot of fun. Thank you. 
Shortly after Juliet is hired as Miss Vicky's secretary, she notices Albert, the first footman, taking a check for $20,000 out of a man's coat. Albert is doing what he always does, takes back checks that Miss Vicky writes because there is no money in the bank account to cover it. Juliet doesn't know that and scolds Albert. This prompts Albert to tell Juliet his backstory of his former life as a minister and how he picked worshippers' pockets after church. You'll have to pay attention to the music underneath the dialogue. Williams uses an organ when Albert is talking about his days in the church, then uses low bass strings as Juliet considers who needs to be told. Once Albert is absolved of his past sins, the organ comes back, a little more playfully this time, as we see that Albert was kind of putting on an act for Juliet. Well, it all began one Sunday in my own church when the collection, normally under $200, was suddenly over four. I couldn't believe that I was the guilty party, so I just waited, and the next Sunday the collection was almost five. It was me, and I was improving. But with you up in the pulpit and them down in the pews, how did you do it? When I greeted them at the door and shook their hands. Did you give the money back? No, miss. I didn't want to shake anyone's faith in the ministry, so I just retired and went into domestic service. Miss Juliet, must you tell Miss Woodworth she'll be so unhappy? Well, I... I guess I could tell Mr. Fitzwilliam instead, but he'll dismiss you. It's no more than I deserve. Albert, listen. If you promise to fight the urge every time you get it, just come to me and talk it out. Then I'm not going to tell anyone. It'll just be our secret, all right? Almost, oh, Juliet. That was one of the few direct comedic musical moments in the film. It's subtle, but the music at the end allows you to laugh as you notice that Albert was sort of faking his misery. One of the main schemes being cooked up by the staff is milking a rich couple out of $75,000 paid to a shady interior designer to redecorate their Florida home. Fitzwillie plans to pocket the money and fill the house with items that he doesn't pay for. Fitzwillie figures that Juliet has to leave the house in order for the plan to continue. He decides to take Juliet on a date, then make an advance that will shock her and want her to resign her position. When they arrive at the restaurant, a song plays. Make me rainbows, make me spring in the snow. Make me beautiful music wherever I go. Make me unwind, leave behind rhyme and reason. Make me a room where I bloom out of season. This song called Make Me Rainbows is based on a melody Williams wrote for the film to serve as the love theme. The songwriting duo of Alan and Marilyn Bergman were called in to supply a lyric for the melody. The song only appears for about 45 seconds in the actual film, and then again in the end credits. At the time of the release of Fitzwillie, 
The married Bergmans were still finding their place in Hollywood as in-demand lyricists. Their work in TV and movies was a package deal. Both of them have always worked together as lyricists on the same project since their first job in 1961. Though Make Me Rainbows was not a big hit in 1967, the Bergmans would become hot commodities the following year with the song Windmills of Your Mind from the film The Thomas Crown Affair, winning the Oscar for original song with composer Michelle Legrand. The Bergmans would write lyrics for so many popular movie songs through the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and would work with Williams to write songs in a few more films over the years. After the date, Juliet does quit her job, but once she stumbles upon the truth about the secret thievery, she gets her job back and goes into the staff quarters to investigate. She finds a machine to make fake IDs and checks to a made-up charity. It's the usual tinkling pianos at the start to convey the sneaking around, then a few comedic flourishes in the flute. So later, as Juliet and Fitzwillie fall in love, they talk about living a life together in which Fitzwillie keeps up his criminal lifestyle. The love theme plays underneath without lyrics this time, then an oboe takes over for a bit. While they talk, Fitzwillie realizes that Juliet mailed a check written by Miss Vicky to a charity with money that she doesn't have. I love the way the orchestra, particularly the trumpets and bass, convey the way Fitzwillie feels inside. Take a listen. Fifty thousand dollars. 
Cancer Research Foundation. I would really like to see the music sheets for that last moment, and I wish I could see the reactions of the trumpet and bass players when they read what they had to perform. It had to be fun to perform the first time. I found myself smiling after hearing it the first time, almost chuckling. Even a professional musician has to have a sense of humor, and I hope John Williams understood any vocal reactions to this piece of music was not meant as mockery. The third act of the film focuses on the Gimbel's department store robbery, which features no original music until after the robbery takes place. Fitzwilly, dressed in disguise, goes into a bathroom and removes his fake wig and mustache. He tells his footman, Albert, the one who will later confess to a crime he didn't really commit, to throw away the disguise and go home. With the robbery a success, for now at least, Williams brings back the main Fitzwilly theme and makes it triumphant as Fitzwilly takes the elevator down to the store exit. I enjoy the stately undertones of the theme. It doesn't feel zany or silly. There's always a dignity to Fitzwilly, and Williams makes sure the music exemplifies that. So on the surface, this would appear to be a very slight comedy in which John Williams probably thought little would come from it. But this film would provide him some life-changing assignments almost immediately. The director of Fitzwilly was Delbert Mann, who won the directing Oscar for the movie Marty in 1955. Mann spent his early career directing television dramas for anthology shows until he directed the film adaptation of the TV movie Marty. Mann stuck with movies through 1967, then decided to return to TV and brought John Williams with him for the projects Heidi and Jane Eyre. Walter Mirisch was the producer of Fitzwilly, and this was one of three films he was working on for release in 1967. In addition to his production company working on the film version of the Broadway musical How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Mirisch was producer on the drama In the Heat of the Night, which won the Oscar for Best Picture. After that success, Mirisch's production company turned its focus to bringing another big-time musical to the screen, and Mirisch remembered John Williams when it came time to hire someone to adapt the music for Fiddler on the Roof. So it's clear that long before his association began with Steven Spielberg, John Williams was maintaining close relationships in Hollywood, and it was seriously helping his career, as we will see. Fitzwilly was the last out-and-out comedy John Williams would be involved in for 12 years. A shift was happening in Hollywood when comedies were not as popular with the public. 
1966 and 1967, only musicals, dramas, and James Bond films were in the top 10 grossing movies in the United States. It's likely John Williams saw this as well and thought a change from silly comedies to heavy dramas and musical adaptations would be a boost to his career. He wasn't wrong in that regard, but I think all of us can agree that his writing for comedy films in the 1960s was very good, probably better than they should have been. This genre offered him the ability to experiment with writing in many different musical styles, something drama films often do not provide. His next true comedy after Fitzwilliam, the bomb that was Steven Spielberg's 1941, is best forgotten, but we will be exploring it soon enough on this podcast. Fitzwilly came and went at the box office, as I said, earning just $2 million. Even during the prestigious Christmas holiday season, the release got very little attention. Among all the comedy scores Williams wrote in the 1960s, this seems to garner the least attention. Because it was the last comedy film Williams wrote for many years, I would urge everyone to seek it out. For historical sake, it deserves a viewing as the last Johnny Williams film and the end of his comedy film era. With his next film, John Williams' attention would turn to the growing popularity of musicals and the heavy drama film. And with that, we'll end this episode of The Baton. Before I sign off, I'm going to do a little test, and this will help me discover how many people actually listen all the way through the episodes. If you're one of those people, you'll be rewarded by what I'm about to announce. I'm opening up future episodes of The Baton to guest co-hosts talking about their favorite John Williams scores. So, if you would like to be a part of a future episode, please send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com letting me know what your top three John Williams scores are from 1970 to the present. If I pick you for a future episode, I'll contact you by email a few weeks before recording. Don't get your hopes up, though, about being a part of the episodes for the really popular scores such as Star Wars, E.T., Harry Potter, or Jaws, since I'm working on other plans for those. Pick a score that you think no one else would pick, or go for the big ones and pray that you'll get lucky. This is one way to thank you for listening to my podcast. I hope you're enjoying this journey as much as I have. We're 18 episodes into a 108-episode podcast, and it's going to get more and more exciting. I'll see you next time, and until then, the baton is down. Make me sunsets, paint our names in the sky, let your arms be my wings.